0: Let me invite you to turn once more this morning to the book of Psalms and this morning to the 95th Psalm. Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for it was He who made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter my rest. Father, I pray that today, as you speak to us again, that we would not harden our hearts, but that we would hear. Help us to hear now. Help me to speak. And you, by your Holy Spirit, come and speak through me so that we hear the very voice of God this morning from Psalm 95. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great privileges that we have when we come together like this on the Lord's Day is the opportunity, very simply, in the words of this psalm, to worship and bow down, verse 6, to kneel before the Lord our Maker. And verse 1, to sing for joy to the Lord and shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. In other words, one of the great privileges that we have and one of the great duties that we have as Christians is to come together to turn our hearts toward the Lord in praise and adoration and worship. To give him the glory that is due his name, to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. And that's what this psalm is all about. This psalm is a call to worship. It is very simply a call for the people of God to come together and worship his name. To sing, to kneel, to bow, to praise. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. This is one of the primary reasons, isn't it, why we gather together Sunday by Sunday. Simply so that we might worship the Lord, that we might shout joyfully to him with psalms, that we might sing his praise, that we might bow our hearts before him and tell him how wonderful he is. And that's the theme of this psalm. I say it is a call to worship. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Come, let us worship and bow down. And that's why we're here today. Now, of course, we do many other things on a Sunday morning, too, don't we? We study and we learn and some of us teach. We pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our lives and on our church and on his work in the world. We fellowship. We encourage one another. We catch up. Many of us serve as well. We have various jobs to do when we come here on the Lord's Day. We give as we've just done. And all those things are right and all those things are crucial and they are biblical. But the focus of this passage is on our worship, on our praise, on the way we lift our voices and on the way we bow our hearts to the Lord when we gather together in this place or when we gather for our family devotions at home or in house meetings together in smaller groups. It is important, of course, that we gather for all those other reasons I just mentioned, but it's also vital that we gather, Psalm 95 reminds us, simply so that we might turn our attention to God. And give him the praise that he alone deserves. And so, the songs that we sing and the bowing of our hearts before the public reading of the scripture and the bowing of our hearts this morning in the Lord's Supper, those things are not just the preliminaries to the sermon, they're not just the warm ups for the teaching time. Those things are a vital part of what God has called us together actually to do. Come, let us sing. He says, let us shout, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, singing, kneeling, bowing, giving thanks. Verse two, these are the grand activities that Psalm 95 calls us to when we gather together. And incidentally, aren't these the same sorts of activities that we sometimes read about when the Bible gives us a glimpse into the throne room of heaven? When the biblical authors pull back the curtain and give us a peek at what is happening on the other side, what do we see? We see living creatures and elders and seraphim doing the very same things that we are called to do here in Psalm 95, don't we? We see them falling down before God's throne, bowing down to Him. We hear them declaring His praises with myriads of the redeemed joining with them in Revelation 5. Now, Psalm 95, of course, does not take us to heaven. Psalm 95 is simply a call to worship God rightly here on the earth. But though this psalm doesn't describe the worship of heaven, it does describe a heavenly kind of worship, doesn't it? Psalm 95 does describe and in fact calls us to engage wholeheartedly in the kind of earthly worship which, if we will take it up, will bring us just a little foretaste of heaven even while we're here on the earth. And so I say to you that this psalm is worthy of our attention for what it has to teach us about the great duty and privilege that we have to come together and worship and bow down and sing for joy to the living God. And I want just to try to unpack what the psalmist says for you now under three headings this morning. And the first is simply this. Psalm 95 teaches us how to worship. How worship. To worship. There has been from time to time great discussion and debate, and sometimes even dissension among God's people about how Christians should worship. And of course, there are many other passages of Holy Scripture that speak to those various issues. But Psalm 95 is really quite simple and refreshingly so. How should we worship the Lord our God? How should we give homage to our great King, our Maker, the rock of our salvation? Well, first of all, says the psalmist, with song, with song, verses 1 and 2. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. We worship the Lord by singing. We worship the Lord with song, right? That sounds obvious, doesn't it? Of course we worship the Lord with song. We do that every week. We've done that every week for as long as I can remember. Every church sings, doesn't it? Well, what about individuals? Every church sings. We may sing as a congregation, but do each of you join in individually? Now, I know some of us sing quite poorly. I won't name any names, but some of you would say, boy, I don't if I like to sing is just not a very good singer. And some of us may not like certain songs or some of us may not know certain songs or some of you may just be the kind of person that says, I just don't really like to sing all that much. And all those things I understand to an extent, but I still say to you that none of those objections or preferences or concerns changes the text of Psalm 95, do they? God deserves Your praise. God deserves that you give it a whirl, even if you don't know a certain song very well. God deserves to hear your voice, even in those times when you're not all that keen to raise it. And God likes your voice. He likes your praise, even if you and others don't like your voice. You don't have to sing beautifully to sing for joy. So let us sing, brothers and sisters. And not only in our corporate gatherings, but let's make application of this also in our family worship and even perhaps in our own personal devotions or as we drive along in the car. Let us sing for joy to the Lord. Singing is one of the great vehicles that God has given us to sound aloud the praises that he so richly deserves. So come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. And then that word joy. Shows us something else about how we should worship. Not only with song, but with joy. Listen again to verses 1 and 2. And with an ear particularly to how the psalmist emphasizes joy. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. So how do we worship the Lord with joy with gladness now of course the joy that we worship with should permeate everything that we do as an act of worship to God we should give joyfully we should serve joyfully we should teach joyfully we should count it a joy to be taught God's word and so on but but here in Psalm 95 the joy that is particularly in view is the joy that comes with our singing let us sing for joy Let us sing for joy. Now that means, of course, doesn't it, that we probably shouldn't picture the psalmist expecting us to sing this psalm or any other song that we sing sort of mumbling our way through, uh, just barely audible, right? Let us sing for joy. That also naturally means that we should Take care to select joyful songs, songs whose lyrics convey the reasons we have to be glad in the Lord. Songs which have music that conveys the gladness of the words. You pray that God will help me do this from week to week, that God will help me to select psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which reflect the emphasis of joy here in this psalm. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. And let us sing the kind of songs that will help us do it. Now, we do not do this, of course, to the exclusion of other kinds of songs. I just want to say that briefly. Songs that reflect other sorts of biblical affections, like lament or sorrow for sin or even seriousness about the Lord's death. There are affections that the Christian has and rightly has and should express besides joy. And there are other songs that we sing that express those affections. And there are other psalms that teach us to express those affections. There is bad news in this world, isn't there? So there are reasons to lament. There is sin in our hearts over which we should grieve. So much so that the church's worship would be inauthentic if it was always and only sunny and upbeat. So we must sing the full range of Christian experience. And the Psalms, like no other hymn book, help us do that. But as much as we appreciate the Psalms for the way they give voice to our sorrows and help us to sing to God then, there's a great deal of rejoicing in the Psalms too, isn't there? And our singing, both in public and in private, should reflect this emphasis. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. But then let me say, as I've alluded to already, joyful singing is not just about the songs, is it? It's also about the singers. The songs can be as joyful as can be, but we may mumble through them or sing them only flatly if we come on a Sunday morning without joy in our hearts. If we come on a Sunday morning we're distracted or rushed or moody or feeling sorry for ourselves or unrepentant, or fighting with our wife. Or if, frankly, we come on Sunday morning joyful, but about something that's not God. No one sings a love song with very much gusto if he's not in love. Or if he's trying to sing a love song to one woman when he's actually in love with another. And it's just the same with our singing with joy to the Lord. It's just as difficult to sing with joy if you don't have any joy, right? Or to sing for joy to God when all the while you'd really rather be singing about baseball or vacation or your boyfriend or your new iPhone. And we can't usually just flip the switch on Sunday morning, can we? And make ourselves happy in the Lord starting precisely at 11 o'clock. No. Joy has to be cultivated all week long. And so I say to you, if you're going to sing for joy, if you're going to do what this psalm says, you must cultivate joy. You must cultivate gratitude. You must cultivate a walk with God and a faith in His promises every day of your life. And that joy and that gratitude and that faith will come out of your mouth when it is time to sing. And let me say this too about the joy that must be in us as the singers. Joy can coexist, joy should coexist alongside sorrow in the life of the believer. We can and should be like Paul, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Now I know this may not make very much sense to many people in the world today. To a worldly person, you may be sorrowful, Or you may be rejoicing, but it may not seem very easy for the two affections to hold hands. But for the believer, whose ultimate joy is in eternal realities and whose home is not in this world and whose greatest pleasures are spiritual pleasures, to a believer it's quite possible to sorrow and sorrow deeply and sorrow rightly over the losses and hurts and griefs of this life and all the while to have a deep and well-grounded faith that all is well in the nail-pierced hands of Jesus, that the present struggles are not the whole story, that behind the veil God is doing things and working good that we cannot see, and that therefore I can still, with my tears, rejoice in the goodness of my God. So maybe you come in on a Sunday morning, and a particular song of joy and praise May not seem to resonate with you at all because of what's going on inside or what's going on in your life. And you may even be a little bit irritated that your dad has just found out he has cancer, or you just lost your job, or you can't pay the bills, and everyone around you is smiling and belting out these lyrics about the goodness of God. And I get that. I get that feeling completely. I've been there. And I wouldn't ask you to just put on the Christian mask at that moment and sing the words, pretending that you're much more joyful than you are. But maybe just listen to a verse or two and think about the words that are being sung and ask yourself if they are still true in spite of everything else that's going on in your life. And ask God to help you see that they're true, even in the midst of your trial, and ask him to help you sing them as though they were true. And then open your mouth and sing, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. It is possible to sing for joy even when your heart is broken. So how do we worship God? With song, with joy, and then also verse 6 with reverence. With reverence. There is a time in the worship of the living God to stand and sing with great zeal and gusto, but then there is also a time, verse 6, to worship and bow down. To kneel before the Lord, our maker. To sometimes show in the very posture of our bodies that we reverence and fear the Lord in our hearts. Now in our public gatherings, this reverence probably shows itself most clearly when we bow our hearts and minds to listen to God's voice through the reading and preaching of his word. Here is where we worship and bow down. Here is where we quiet our hearts and bend our souls and humbly listen to the decrees of the King under the reading and the preaching of His Word. And I just want to encourage you to think in those terms when this book is opened before you. And God speaks from it to you on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or in your own family or personal devotionals. I want you to say to yourself, this is the point in the service at which I bow my heart. This is the time to worship and bow down. This is when I bend my knee. Lord, I'm bowing before You in my heart right now, and I submit myself to every syllable in Your Word. And I bow before You now as Your humble servant. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Sometimes we... We'll do that very physically, perhaps. We certainly will do it physically when we see him face to face someday. But even now, let us reverence the Lord by bowing in submission when he speaks, by bending our souls low in submission before his word. So, let us sing, says the psalmist. Let us sing for joy, and let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. That is the how of worship in Psalm 95. But then we also need to notice even more fundamentally that Psalm 95 teaches us why we worship. How we worship, yes, important, but why we worship as well. And I just want you to listen again. I'm going to read the first seven verses again and see if you can detect the reasons the psalmist gives as to why we should sing and bow and kneel before our God. I'll begin at verse 1 and, and stop almost all the way through verse 7. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Did you hear it? The reasons why we should bow down, the reasons why we should sing? For one thing, says the psalmist, because God is king, verses 2 and 3. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Now, we talked quite a bit last week about the Lord as king. Ruling over all his realm. More powerful than the waves of the sea. Psalm 93. More powerful even than the most powerful of men. Daniel chapter 4. And more powerful here in verse 3. Even than all other gods. God is a great king above all gods, he says. Now someone will say, well, what other gods? I thought that there was only one God. I thought that all the other gods were actually just blocks of stone. Or in our culture, piles of silicon and glass and computer chips. I thought that there was only one true God and that all the other things that men and women tend to worship are actually just inanimate objects. Well, yes, in some ways that's true, but somehow those inanimate objects, with the help of the devil and our own sinfulness, somehow these objects seem to hold a great sway in people's lives don't they so that while they themselves are not actually gods they certainly function that way for those who rely upon them and then on a slightly different track a couple of the commentators i read on this psalm helped me to realize that the gods here that are referred to in verse three may in fact be a reference to other people specifically people who hold sway over mankind rulers of various sorts And we are prone to treat them as gods sometimes too, aren't we? So that if we have a bad ruler, the sky is falling and it will never be good again. But if we could just get the right guy in place, well then everything around us would shine in technicolor like the merry old land of Oz and all would be well. But no, God is greater than all the other gods, whether they be objects or whether they be men. He is a great king above all gods. Above them all because he's better than them, for one thing. He's a better master than all of the objects and peoples and dreams and feelings to which we so often chain our hopes of happiness. His yoke is much easier. His burden is much lighter. His promises are much better and more reliable than anything else that we make our God. And also, our God is king above all gods because he will someday overthrow them all, every last one. Someday, all the satisfaction that we find and all the hope that we place in our various idols, whatever they may be, it will all be someday null and void forever, won't it? replaced either by everlasting torment, if we do not leave our idols and repent, or for those of us who trust in Christ, replaced by the privilege of enjoying and living under the righteous government of the one true God forever and ever. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms, for the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. And let us shout joyfully to him with psalms also. Not only because he is king, but because he is creator, the psalmist says in verses 4 through 6. In whose hands, hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, creator. That's why we worship this God. So you go to Mammoth Cave and you plunge into the depths of the earth, verse 4. And you will have reason to shout joyfully to the great God who formed such wonders. Or you go stand in the snow on a lookout point, staring up the side of Mount Rainier in the state of Washington. And you'll have cause to worship and bow down before the one who created the peaks of the mountains, verse 4b. Or stand on the shore of Massachusetts or of Oregon, staring out over the waters that stretch as far as the eye can see and wonder at the greatness of our God. And then turn around and realize that in the other direction, the dry land, verse 5, goes for days past the limits of your sight. And let such things move you to sing for joy to the Lord. For the sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. And then, just take a look in the mirror. You may not like what you see there aesthetically any more than you like what you hear when you open your voice to sing. But aren't you glad that there's something on the other side of that mirror Something in that mirror for you to see? Aren't you glad you have blood running through your veins? Aren't you glad that you have a soul that you live? And if so, shouldn't you praise the one who made you too? Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. He made us too. This is why we praise God, isn't it? Because he is the one who made the caves and the mountains and the sea and the dry land and even the person that we look at every morning in the mirror. And we praise him as king and we praise him as creator. And then we praise him, thirdly, the psalmist says, as shepherd. As shepherd in verses 6 and 7. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. In verse 3, we praise him because he is a great God. But in verse 7, we praise him because he is our God. And we are his sheep. Never forget this picture of shepherd and sheep. It occurs multiple places in the scriptures. And it tells me that if I am in Christ, the Lord is my shepherd, and I am the sheep of his hand. If you have come to know Christ, then you can be certain that God did not only create you, and he does not simply rule over you as a good king, but he also watches over you tenderly like a shepherd caring for his sheep. have you experienced this, believer? Can you not say, you who know Christ, can you not say, as you think of Jesus' dealings with your soul, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. And if he has shepherded you this far, don't you know that he will still be with you when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, so that you need fear no evil? The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is your shepherd, if you know Christ. The Good Shepherd does know you, believer. And you know Him. You're the sheep of His hand. And the Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. And no one will snatch you out of His nail-pierced hand. What love Christ our Shepherd has shown to us. What love He continues to show to us day by day as like a shepherd. He guides us in the paths of righteousness for his, for his name's sake. And for all this tender care of the shepherd, says the psalmist, we should bow at his feet and worship. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So we've thought about how to worship the Lord. With song and with joy and with reverence. And then we've considered three reasons why we should worship the Lord. Because He is King. He's Creator. He's our Shepherd. But then at the end of verse 7 and continuing down through the end of the psalm, the psalmist shifts gears fairly dramatically. He goes from telling us how to worship and why we worship to now telling us what not to do. What not to do. Listen, beginning at the end of verse 7. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest now what is this all about and why is this here what's he talking about first of all God's people hardening their hearts and testing the Lord at some place called Meribah and Massah so that God was angry with them and they didn't enter into his rest what is this all about Well, the psalmist is here reminding us of an incident that happened back in the book of Exodus when the Israelites were passing through the wilderness after God had brought them out of their slavery in Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. In fact, I just want you to go back with me to Exodus chapter 17 and let's just read a few verses that will catch us up to speed on what the psalmist is getting at here. Exodus 17, and we'll read verses 1 through 7. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Sin according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people a little more, and they will stone me? Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah and Meribah. Because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So what was the problem of the Israelites at Meribah and Massah? Well, first of all, they seemed to have very little faith, right? They tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? They didn't have water and they didn't seem to have a great deal of faith either. That God would provide what they needed. And then secondly, in addition to their lack of faith, they grumbled. They murmured, they complained because they did not have the water they needed. And they didn't think it was going to be provided for them. And you may say, well, if I was that thirsty and I was out in the wilderness and there was no water, I I would be a little bit upset too. But they had seen God's mighty acts already, hadn't they? They didn't have good reason to doubt that the Lord would take care of them. That's what we're reminded of in Psalm 95, 9. They tried me, though they had seen my work. They had seen God do amazing things. First of all, in sending the plagues on Egypt so that they might go free. And just one chapter before the incident at Meribah and Massah, the Lord had rained down bread from heaven. Upon them in the wilderness, manna from heaven, food that they didn't have to cultivate or work for. They just walked outside in the morning and gathered up as much as they needed. And every day it was there twice as much the day before the Sabbath. God gave them to take. And yet once again here they have a need and they have a God who's proven to meet their needs and they don't believe and they gripe and complain and grumble and become loathsome in the sight of God. But what has all this to do with the rest of Psalm 95? Why tack this warning from such an ugly period of the Israelites' history on to the end of these lofty verses about the goodness of God and the praise that we should shower upon Him? Why is this here? Well, it's possible that when the psalmist wrote this psalm, the people of Israel were grumbling again. Or at least tempted to. And maybe he wrote this psalm to remind them that our God is worthy to be praised, verses 1 through 7. And that we'd better not complain, verses 8 through 11, even when the Lord doesn't operate on our timetables. Or maybe the psalmist just knew how prone God's people are at all times to murmur against God in unbelief. Rather than giving him praise. Isn't that true of us? Maybe the psalmist knew how prone we are to complain about the one area in which it doesn't seem that the Lord is providing for us and to close our lips about all the other reasons we have for giving thanks. Isn't that true of us too? Maybe the psalmist saw very clearly that murmuring unbelief is the very opposite of the kind of praise that he's been calling for in the first seven verses. Indeed, that murmuring unbelief is the very death of the kind of praise that he's been calling for in the first seven verses. Murmuring unbelief is the death of worship. It's the death of song, isn't it? And so... In this psalm in which he is calling us to worship and calling us to sing and calling us to bow down and calling us to give thanks and giving us multiple reasons why the Lord is worthy of such things. He shores up that call to worship by reminding us also to squelch the unbelief and the belly aching that always pulls a rug out from under our praise. So keep this warning in mind as you go out today. It's all well and good to leave and say yes, I need to sing to the Lord. I need to sing joyfully to the Lord. I need to bow my heart before the Lord in reverence and submission. I need to do what the psalmist is calling us to do. But if you're not committed to quit your belly aching and your unbelief, and if I'm not committed to quit mine, it will all come to naught. Because see, these Israelites saw God do amazing things. They had great reason to praise God. They saw him miraculously, in fact, provide water that very day at Meribah in spite of their complaining. But they died in the wilderness because of their unbelief and their murmuring against the Lord. Let's not do the same. Because if the Israelites saw God's work, verse 9, what about us? God has not merely redeemed us from slavery in Egypt. He's redeemed us from slavery to sin and death. And He has not done so with the blood of a Passover lamb, but with the blood of His own Son. And He's not merely given us manna. He's given us Jesus Christ as the living bread that came down out of heaven so that if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And to quench our thirst, He has sent His Son, something like that rock in Exodus chapter 17, that Jesus might pour out upon us living water, which, if we drink it, will become in us a well of water springing up to eternal life. Truly, Jesus is, verse 1, the rock of our salvation, pouring forth God's living water upon his own. I say to you that the Israelites saw God's work, but we far more and having seen it, Having observed all that the Lord has already done on our behalf, let us not doubt this, God. Let us not test Him or harden our hearts against Him as at Meribah. Let us not grumble against Him, but let us see His goodness all around us. Our King, our Creator, our Shepherd, the Good Shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep. And come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation.